your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Did you know that about 3 million Americans suffer from glaucoma? Glaucoma is a progressive disease of the eye caused by an asymptomatic, unnoticeable increase in eye pressure that can damage the optic nerve. If left undiagnosed or untreated, glaucoma can significantly disrupt your quality of life and even cause blindness. Though there is no cure for glaucoma, there are treatment options available to control it and slow disease progression. Some common ways to treat glaucoma include eye drops, conventional surgery, and a state-of-the-art microinvasive glaucoma surgery known as MIGS. MIGS is a proven option to reduce eye pressure that can provide 24-7 control over your glaucoma by using micro devices that can't be seen or felt. Also, unlike more invasive glaucoma surgeries, MIGS is a safer, simpler option with a faster recovery time. Understanding how to take action against your glaucoma early on with a MIGS device is an important piece to navigating your treatment journey to slow disease progression. And now a revolutionary MIGS device is available to treat your glaucoma, iStent Infinite. For those who have failed prior medical and surgical treatment, iStent Infinite is an implantable alternative to eye drops that uses three micro-sized stents that your doctor places inside your eye, designed to create open pathways to maximize drainage, relieve pressure, and slow your disease progression. If your doctor recommended iStent Infinite to you, it could be a great option to finally lower the number of eye drops you take and decrease your eye pressure. If you have failed a prior glaucoma surgery, ask your doctor if iStent Infinite is right for you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Chris May. In part two, Dr. May discusses new concepts in glaucoma. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. I do want to ask you about the electrodiagnostics. How do you use that in your practice for uh, diagnosis, progression? How do you use it? Which ones do you use? Do you use uh, VEP, ERG? What, what, what tests do you use? So that's something that's been, I talk about changing quick. Um, man, uh, treatment is one thing. But diagnosis is changing really rapidly right now. Uh, the tools we use in the office are changing. What's really interesting is like our workflow, like what the patient experiences in testing has changed. Uh, go back to my father-in-law years ago. You know, he knew he was coming in. You know, we doing the pictures today? Yeah, yep. Okay. You dilate me today? Yep. Well, what a patient experiences in our clinics now when they come in is less of the, okay, we're going to go back to the, the dark room where we do the big test in the refrigerator. That's all advanced. Now, VEP, visually evoked potential, we've used in clinic, uh, in our clinic for probably close to 15 years. Our device that we were using for that was this big offset computer. It took about 20 minutes to set up and do. And we get very, very good data out of our, our device, the legacy device that we were using there. What's amazing is now that that's a handheld device. I mean, it is the size of, I mean, it literally holds in one hand and goes over one eye. So it's, you know, the size of a, I would say a hairdryer, but I don't remember what a hairdryer looks like. That's where <laughs> the bald jokes, sorry. But the, that device is able to come to the patient. Now, same thing for our visual field device. Uh, we utilize headset technology with a device called Radius XR in our, in our clinic that that's brought the visual field down from the big machine where they click the button down to a headset. 
Uh, same thing for our color vision testing, some other things that we do there. Now, VEP was really useful in confirming visual field loss. We've moved now to using more of a, of a Flickr ERG, looking for how much of that optic atrophy damage we have in the optic nerve. What's amazing is that test went from 15 minutes to more like three to five minutes. So it's much easier to set up. We get more reliable results that I can bring it to the patient. So if the patient's in a wheelchair now, the patient sits there. We bring all of this testing to them rather than having to get them. So if someone that has a neck problem, I can get a visual field. I can get electrodiagnostic testing. That testing in combination with each other is the magic because just a visual field is a human being responding to something. So if I'm sleepy and I'm taking a visual field and there's times where I've been at the optometry school and I walk back into one of our field rooms, which are these dark little rooms with the machine in it and the patient's asleep and the student's asleep and no one's responding. They're holding the button down and, and it's like, well, that data is probably not very good. Mm -hmm. So versus if you had two cups of coffee and you're, wow, yep, 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 yep. They're all over it. You're going, okay, easy, calm down. So that data may not be very good. So we have to repeat it a bunch of times. Well, the electrodiagnostics allow us to confirm what we're seeing much earlier and actually goes really well along with that glaucoma progression analysis that you're talking about. And so if we're starting to see, hey, what do all these fields tell me is happening? Does this very sensitive electrodiagnostic testing tell us what's up? And the description I use for patients in that is it's just like using a circuit tester, right? So if we're measuring a circuit and it's carrying 100 and 110 volts, well, we know we've got full power. Now, if we go and we test that same circuit and we're going, uh-oh, we're at 102 volts. Now that still may be enough to light the light, but that's not the full electricity that we're looking for headed down that wire. That tells us we need to start figuring out why, what's wrong, what's going on. Now that might be at the generation end. So that might be at the processing end. So all of these pieces of the puzzle come together to help us do better diagnosis. But I think the testing has changed as much as the treatment has changed. And I think for the most part in a good way, our ability to gather large amounts of data it has been great. Our, it does put some work uh, in our laps. We have to digest all of that data. For students, that can get overwhelming because you're going to go, wait a minute, how many of these things do I have to look at? It's like, unfortunately, it's a multifactorial disease. So we have to know everything from the thickness of the front of the eye to whether or not that electro electrodiagnostic on the way the signal goes back to the brain from all the way front to back, all of that goes into account not just one thing like pressure. It was easier when all we had to talk about was pressure though. I liked that in the old days, but I do a better job now. It's interesting you bring you bring up how complicated the eye is. You know, now with the with the cell phones, they're advocating there are disruptors that are advocating getting your eyes examined by a cell phone online. Now, can you really do a good job examining someone's eye with a cell phone? It you know, I have a joke about this and, and I, it's tongue in cheek. I Look, increased access is almost always a good thing. But what I worry about is what if we're not doing the right parts of that? What if we're not getting all these elements uh, of testing involved to screen to make sure, you know, the ability to do a quick little side vision test rather than a big involved one, um, that it's different on a cell phone. In general, though, as long as we've got something, I'm pretty happy. So physically, I wish that we could do all of this on a cell phone. You and I would be so much happier sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, yep, you're fine. Yep, you're fine. But uh, unfortunately, the only way I've found to do this is to really physically be present. And the problem is, is until we can do all of the things that we need to do remotely, we're compromising in some way. That makes me a little nervous. If anything, my concern is we hear some of these numbers. I mean, think about 110 million people in 10 or 15 years with glaucoma. That's scary. And what worries me on that is how many of those patients go, well, either I can see fine, I don't need an eye doctor, I'm great. Or they go, well, I got a little thing and that got me fixed up. This will do for right now and I'm busy. I'll, I'll go for the good eye exam next year. And I know what happens when we do that for the next year. We've all been doing that. <laughs> it's the, the next year becomes the next becomes the next. And that's when you turn out with one of those patients that is symptomatic because we're much further along this line than we want to be. You know, talking about symptoms, uh, glaucoma patients have trouble reading, they have difficulty with driving, and even falls. You know, glaucoma patients fall at about four times the rate of a non-glaucoma patient. If you could comment on that. Well, I mean, if you think of the process, so when we talk about that side vision damage, most of the side vision damage early on 
is peripheral, which is part of why patients don't notice it. So that side vision, imagine trying to drive with horse blinders on. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd imagine they're probably more likely to, to be in uh, cross traffic wrecks as well. Well, that would be moderately noticeable, you'd think, but it comes up so slow that the patient doesn't really notice it. But that same thing's happening in their inferior visual field. So imagine, instead of the horse blinders being this way, you're walking around with them this way. Steps become something that is an absolute terror to these patients. And a lot of patients, though, don't recognize that that actually is that first symptom of glaucoma because they're going, what happens? Ah, I'm just having trouble lifting the feet, I guess. You know, the same things we write this off as what happens with some extra birthdays. On the other aspect of that, though, is patients that have known glaucoma, if they're progressing and we're losing peripheral vision, they still might be 20-20 straight ahead. But they've had such a profound reduction of their field, it's like they're looking down a, a, a straw. Well, you might be able to read the letters off looking down a straw, but there's no way you could climb a ladder up and down. And that's where those falls get so dangerous because something as simple as a curb or a small step or a threshold in the house suddenly becomes a danger. And that can be a very different, from a fall standpoint, there's a ton of statistical data on the number of times that a fall is that fork in the road that sends a patient on a very different long-term health outcome that we don't want to go down that road. Now, you talked about some of the risk factors before. We talked about family history, of course, age, uh, you know, uh, steroid users. I think you mentioned that, eye injuries. But uh, let's talk about some of these other ones like sleep apnea and migraines uh, increase the risk of glaucoma. If you're a, if you have sleep apnea or you're a migraine sufferer, sufferer explain why that that is. Well, the great, great call out there, too, because one of the things for apnea, it is amazing the number of times that we have a glaucoma suspect and we ask, you know, do you have sleep apnea? And we have a couple of other little things. Have you ever had, you know, major blood loss, that trauma, those things like that? We're looking for that. You know, it, and usually the look you get back is sort of a, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it's, I think it just illustrates how connected our bodies are. Now, the why there is a little complicated and probably also multiple whys. The most simple one makes sense though, right? So if you have an, an apnea patient and you stop breathing for, seconds, long numbers of seconds. So holding your breath for 40, 50 seconds randomly, for lack of a better way to put it. But when you're doing that, your body's using up oxygen. So your pulse ox is dropping down. So there's less oxygen in your blood. Now we were talking about that push, that you know nutrient coming into the eye versus the pressure pushing back out at it. So if you're laid down, so your eye pressure is kind of even here, your head's even with your heart. And now, so we don't have a lot of pressure pushing in. And then if you're holding your breath, essentially, you know, we're not getting fully oxygenated blood. So now the amount of nutrition we have coming into that eye, the nourishment decreased. Well, that's probably not a big deal if you're holding your, your breath for 30 or 45 seconds while you're swimming or something else like that. But imagine doing that hundreds of times a night, every night. And that's why those patients have increased risk of heart attack. That's how big that is on their general health. But the optic nerve, it has an issue there too. Now, structurally, I believe there's a connection as well. And the same thing within the soft palate that causes uh, sleep apnea, that causes us to snore. Uh, my wife says I snore. It, it's impossible. And it's never woken me up. I sleep like a baby other than this thunder sound that I hear, man. <laughs> but when I'm, you know, I'm snoring, then it's my soft palate dropping back. So structurally, is it as stiff as it's supposed to be? Well, inside our eye, there's a structure that holds that. You talked about the nerves that make up the nerves, which is a, a great way to look at it. So that structure, the lamina cribosa sitting there and all of these little nerves are, are filtering through it. Well, if that structure is the same way that that soft palate was snoring, instead of it's dropping in on itself, maybe those wires in these patients are also at more chance of being pinched off and cut off. So their donut is kind of floppy. And on top of that, it's not as well nourished. And on top of that, this patient's laying down and all of those factors start to come into why we have such a hard time figuring out why some patients get worse and other patients don't. But I think apnea is a huge factor when it comes into glaucoma, particularly glaucoma progression. And I tell you what, I've got another little spot there that I also step in on. We talked briefly about uh, cardio and, and heart this is a place where we have to communicate, not just between eye doctors, but it's a place to communicate with systemic disease. Because 
your primary care doctor is telling this patient, hey, your blood pressure is high, take this blood pressure medicine. Well, we want them exercising, want them doing all these other things, and they pop that pill at night, right? So they lay down. So all of these other factors we talked about just happened. But on top of that, they took their blood pressure pill right before bed. Well, now their blood pressure is lower. So that pressure pushing in is lower. Something as simple as having a patient take their blood pressure medicine in the mornings can have an impact on glaucoma progression. That, that's that interventional model kind of in a very, very fundamental form, looking at this patient and looking at everyone that participates in their healthcare and their role that it has to take in there. But uh, it, it is one of those moments where I think it illustrates just how interconnected our bodies are. And yeah, it gets also some weird looks from patients. So because the use of a CPAP machine is also important there as well. So many of those patients went, I used it, I quit doing it because it didn't feel any better. And that's a moment to talk to them about that because they, you know, what is it? I guess our, our main fears in life, it's uh, what public speaking, blindness and death. So death's like a distant third. So blindness sometimes is the motivator that helps you go, okay, okay, I'll break this thing back out. Let me get into using my CPAP machine and using it better for my overall health, but also for my eyes. I mean, the same with migraines. Also, people with metabolic syndrome the big with the big bellies, uh, they're at greater risk of having higher IOP, greater risk for glaucoma. Uh, you know, with the, the, the circulation just isn't as good. Yeah, it's, I think any circulatory issue, I mean, that's why we see diabetes have an effect here, right? Any microvascular disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, glaucoma, or microvascular diseases, our little bitty blood vessels are where the disease is happening. And I think in migraineurs, the, the other aspect there is understanding, yes, there's some overlap. You know, are we, like your sinus patient or anything else, are we having uh, much higher pressures than we think they're having? And that's simulating the, the migraine. Or is it also migraine as a vascular event, right? A vasospasm inside the brain. We have blood flow changes in here. Why is that happening in this patient? How is that connected? And, and we know it's connected. It's just starting to learn more and more about that. And I think that's that's also a place where the future is exciting. It, that, that puts a little bit more uh, onus on our scientists. We got to keep developing better ways of figuring out these interconnections and what we can do for this to help make sure that we're diagnosing earlier and better. And those metabolic syndrome patients, they're more sympathetic also. So that increases the intraocular pressure. And the pressure is higher in the winter, you know. So, you know, it's it's interesting. So when it gets colder out uh, in the winter, the pressure usually is a little bit higher. So that's something as a risk factor that people should know about. So you talked about the types of glaucoma before. And we talked about open angle glaucoma. Just if we could explain it a, a little bit more, what open angle versus ang uh, angle closure or chronic angle closure is, and and then we'll get into normal tension glaucoma. Well, I think so. The when it comes to this description, uh, and, and I'm I'm a southerner, and I'm a I'm a hand talker. So the problem is, I immediately start. You know, we get the angle. I got my donut, and I got my my angle. So, but the easiest way to think about it is of a drain. So now open angle and closed angle, those are, those make sense, right? When we're talking about that, if you have a drain and it's closed, we're not letting everything out. So there's fluid produced in the eye. If it can't get out that drain, then that angle is closed and the pressure can go very, very high. Another one of those moments too, that I don't know if your patients ask you this is they always get when I told my pressure, like what's the highest pressure you've ever had? I don't know if they want to win it and be the highest pressure or if they're just as long as somebody else is worse than them, they're happy with it. My highest pressure, by the way, 92 uh, is the highest pressure I've ever had. And uh, for those of you, the, the little meter that we have only goes to 80. That is not something that you want to routinely ever even know how high our tonometers go. But those angle closures, they can go very, very high. That's the, the uncomfortable. That patient's going, I've got the worst headache of my entire life. Um those angle closures are, are very unpleasant uh, and hard to break and difficult patients to treat. Open angle, just like it sounds, that drain is open, but insufficient for some reason. And that's where, instead of using my hands, I think the sink works. Because when we're talking about a drain, the drainage system inside the eye it has multiple different patterns as it's flowing from the pressure from the fluid, I'm sorry, inside the eye, maintaining pressure and moving nutrient around the eye, right? This isn't, it's not bad. We need this, this process. And God made it where our eyes work. Our eyes are amazing how complex they are and what they're able to do. 
It's astonishing that it can even work. But if any point along the drain, just like your sink drain in your house, isn't working, we start having problems. So that might be right at the very top. So if we're looking in at the eye, uh, when we, we're looking at that angle, we look at it like this and we can see the trabecular meshwork. And that old meshwork is kind of like a little sponge and fluid is percolating through it and back out into the to the body. So it exits the eye that way. Well, then beyond that is a, a, a slightly bigger pipe that goes beyond it, just like in your sink, it kind of goes down by the, the P-trap and goes further. And then there's kind of the main drain where, where that fluid goes back out and into the blood for, for recirculation. So depending on where it's blocked up, that's a very different thing on treatment, both with which medicines are going to work, what laser or what surgery might be the best choice for a patient. So it tells us how to intervene. But fundamentally, what's happening at the patient side of that is all they know is this drain is not draining. So the pressure is high. And that's why we kind of focus in on interocular pressure so much, because all we know is our drain is not draining well, and we need to do something better. So that's ocular hypertension means that that pressure is up, but the nerve isn't damaged yet. And then staging for glaucoma, we get into a bunch of different little places where we parse the differences in this um, that honestly matter to you and me and to insurance companies. But frankly, to the patient, it doesn't matter. The goal is to not get worse. You know, we often get phone calls from patients or patients that are that have glaucoma that they want to use over-the-counter medicines or prescription medicines that can dilate the pupil. And they want to know if they could use antihistamines or anti-nausea medicines or antidepressants or, you know, some medicines for Parkinson's and they could dilate the pupil. So which type of glaucoma can you not use those medications for? That is actually, we get a ton of the same phone calls and it is, it just shows that I am not teaching my patients as good as I thought I was. So um, that narrower angle, that's the one where if the pupil dilates, it can shut that down. So that narrow angle, angle closure suspect or intermittent angle closure patient, that's the one where we're worried about these medicines. Some of the urinary medicines can do that. There's like you said, uh, anhistamines, or, or you'll anytime you read the little thing that says, you know, do not use if you have certain types of glaucoma or at risk for certain types of glaucoma. So that is that more narrow patient. That is part of why also we can't diagnose that patient without looking at that angle. I mean, you've got to know is that angle open, closed, somewhere in between, narrowed, occludable in any way. And hopefully, any of my students that are that ever listen to this will hear me in their ear telling them like. Because they go, this patient has has OAG. So we throw that around because we like using terms. It makes us sound really smart. And so, so they're OAG, are they? It's like, yeah, they're open angle glaucoma. It's like, okay. Did you look at the angle yet? It's like, and there's this little pause and moment. They usually run back into the room and come back in a minute later. But that's part of all of that process. But it's part of figuring out the best way to do it. But it helps us know when to tell the patient, hey, be careful of this medicine or that medicine. Steroids are another good place there too, because I have a lot of patients that they've read one thing. It said, well, steroids can make my pressure go up. We have talked about pressure for years if we've been managing them. So then they're going, no, 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 I can't use this. And they've got a breathing issue or something substantial. Like, whoa, 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 look, steroids can increase your pressure. For some patients, steroid responders, certain patients, if they take a little bit of steroid, we get big responses back out because that, that mesh, for some reason in those patients, tightens up when it has steroids. So, but... For those patients, there are some where you're like, hey, if you have a steroid breathing treatment or I don't know, do you guys have sinus cocktail shots? Do you have those? Okay, so I did not realize that this is only a Southern thing. So sinus, okay, so we have sinus cocktails. Sounds That's like the, alcohol's involved. Yeah, uh, it, it would be more fun if it is. Uh, but so that is a hot toddy and is good for your soul. But may or may not help your pressure. And uh, if you're congested, might make you at least sleep good. That is not the same. A sinus cocktail shots are, are pretty common shots used in the Southeast, in Southeastern United States especially. And what it basically is, is a mix of B-complex. Uh, sometimes they'll have a little recephin in it, antibiotic in it, steroids. And it's just built to make you feel better and help get you back to work when you have a sinus infection. Well, First of all, didn't realize that that's not something done until I was actually giving a lecture at one point in Colorado, and that sinus cocktail got a, a laugh on a lecture that it shouldn't have gotten a laugh at because they thought we were talking about you know drinking your sinus medicine rather than a shot. But for some patients, 
they need to know, hey, it's okay for you to use your steroid. If you have to pulse because your rheumatoid is acting up or your lupus is acting up, you're going to have to have oral steroids sometimes. That's okay. Let me know. We'll watch your pressure when that happens. Other patients, if they're strong steroid responders, it might be at the other end of the spectrum where we need to tell them, hey, don't, you don't need to, we got to be careful here. You can't go get your little sinus cocktail shot uh, on a Sunday afternoon so that you can make your big meeting on Monday because that can cause some major problems. And what we don't want to do, you mentioned pupillary block earlier. We can get a patient from an open angle glaucoma with a steroid response. If their pressure starts to come up, that block happens and it starts to shift the pressure up. And there's where pressure begets pressure. The higher the pressure goes, the higher the pressure will go. And if it zips that drain shut, something that started out an open angle process, suddenly that patient found themselves at the other end of the pool. And that put, that's on us to, to do a better job of helping our patients understand what they can take and can't take and what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And I think the patients have to realize that OTC nasal sprays or inhalers that could contain steroids like Simbacord, Flovent, Advir, these are things that have steroids in it could raise the eye pressure. Now, obviously, we don't want anyone to die of an asthma attack, but it oh, could, but, but, uh, but if the pressure goes up, you know, there's certain, there's ways that we could lower the pressure. Anything that has an effect has a side effect. So we have to make sure we're looking at all those interactions and making that best choice for the patient. And the same thing, even on some of the herbal supplements there, there's always the patient that wants to smoke their glaucoma treatment. You know, these things they go, oh, I read this. If you smoke this, it lowers your pressure. It's like, okay, maybe, but that's not a, a good treatment. You know, and I have an eye drop that'll lower your pressure for 84 hours. What you're doing is not necessarily the same thing. And depending on your state, maybe a significant problem. But equally, uh, we've seen a lot of patients using CBD, non-THC CBDs, and uh, reporting, hey, this is really helping my joint pain, or it helps me so I'm sleeping through the night without waking up. Okay, great and wonderful, but it is important to understand that if the THC can lower the pressure, the CBD may increase the pressure. And these are places we have to watch all these interactions. And so it is a spot to make sure we're talking to those patients about what else are we using so whether it's a, a gummy or a tincture or something else like that, you know, cream's not such a big deal. Same thing for steroid cream's not such a big deal. But the second it's systemic, we have to look at all the interactions and make sure we're, we're talking about this. So make sure if you're a patient, you're telling your doctor everything that we're using because all of this stuff interacts. MacU Health. Your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. I've had a few patients who couldn't use any medication and they wanted to use marijuana as their, 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 their mode of treatment for glaucoma and they didn't do well. I got to say, I've had about four patients and, you know, maybe it lasts three hours and you know, they don't like the way they feel. They just, they just didn't do well on the marijuana either. And of course, uh, the surgical outcome was, was the best treatment for them. Now let's talk about normal tension. About a third of the population, they don't have high pressure, but they still have glaucoma. And those are tricky. You know, they, they, those are the sleep apnea patients that we talked about. 10, more, 10 times more likely to get uh, glaucoma if you have sleep apnea. So talk about the normal tension and as eye doctors, how we look at it as patients, how they have to look at it and how we have to be careful with these people. Well, the, you're exactly right. The, the normotensives are the tricky ones. Head scratchers where we're looking and we're going, what is happening here? And I think there's a couple of things that come into play. I think understanding the disease process is part of it, to your exact point. Apnea, anything else that do, uh, severe anemia, we see these sometimes patients that have had aggressive treatments. I've actually had a couple of patients that had uh, aggressive weight loss surgery that had severe nutritional issues after that. We, we saw what mimicked normotensive glaucomas in them. So either way, though, you know, we talked about that high pressure pushing back. Well, if what's happening on the nu nutritional side of it, on the blood flow side of it, on the circulatory side of it is down, that'll mimic that exact same process. The problem is it's just much harder to diagnose. Uh, when we're checking pressures, if we get that pressure of 78 and pressure of 40, that patient's easy to diagnose. These patients that are in between are much more difficult. So we're looking at 
very tiny changes. And that's the place where all of this new technology and the diagnostic side of it really helps. Because what we're really looking for is the bad apple that's salt that's bothering the bunch, right? So we've got your your nerve made up of nerves and it's sitting inside this webbing. And if one nerve dies, that's kind of like that bad apple in the bag of apples. It triggers the cells next to it and makes them sick. Well, when you're looking at one nerve at the front on our donut, we're looking at a million nerves. So you're trying to see the one that's sick, not something that, that we're capable of doing. But as he starts to affect the ones next to it and next to it and next to it, that's where we're at. In normotensive glaucoma, since we don't have that nice, obvious sign of a very high pressure, and this is a little more common, uh, Asian descent, uh, certain uh, ethnic groups will have a little bit increase. I do believe this is a place where we will have help from a genetic standpoint. We've already got a handful of genetic markers in normotensive that we're learning to look for. That will be overwhelmingly helpful. But unfortunately, it's still a will be. So right now we're back to the same thing, making sure that we're getting patients coming in for good eye exams. And it's not as simple as just that little screening test. You, know, you can't say, I had the puff of air, I'm good. You know, Well, the puff of air might be right, might be wrong. A rechecked pressure might be right, might be wrong. We have to really engage and pay attention here to what we're doing. And I think it's from a patient standpoint, by the way, we're not vilifying the the idea of having a, a smartphone-based eye exam, right? Yeah, a prescription. So go, hey, how do I know if I need a plus one or a plus two reader? Okay, that's one thing, but that's not the same thing as an eye exam. And going in and looking, having a quick run through when I'm behind and I've got a bunch of patients and I'm looking through, I have to continually slow my mind and make sure that I'm paying attention because if I miss just one patient, that I could have intervened on, it's just unacceptable. And normotensive glaucoma, since it is those other factors, we have to have time to ask those questions, to go through and say, tell me what else is happening here, but also to look and go, things like our equipment, being able to have a screening test that has a database stored for years. And I look back and go, hey, when I looked at your nerve, the hole in the middle of the donut a few years ago looked pretty normal. And as I'm looking at it now, it looks different. That shouldn't have changed. And they go, it was a glaucoma. It's like, well, it could be, but your pressure's good. So never mind. You know, I'm behind and I got to make the lunch. No, we can't do that. It has to be more of a, it could be. Now let's talk about what this next step needs to be and what do we need to do to figure out where we are and when we need to intervene and how we need to intervene. Because, of course, metabolic syndrome patients, so apnea patients, anemic patients, or even okay. patients that I are seeing it, it's, it's a different approach. Yeah, and, and people have, over the years, uh, glaucoma experts have thought about normal pressure glaucoma or normal tension glaucoma. So these are patients that have normal eye pressure. Now, eye pressure fluctuates. So sometimes we can catch them when the pressure is low, but at night or different times of the day, you know, the pressure goes up because we're just getting them just taking like a picture of the bird. We don't know where the bird is going. The same with uh, the true normal tension or people who are getting fluctuating in vision. And people have theorized that this may actually be a different disease in itself. So, you know, it's it's tricky. So another reason why it's very important to get your eyes examined on a regular basis. And it's not just pressure. There's all these other tests that we talk, talked about. Now, I want to ask you about one other test that you didn't mention. And what do you think about advanced pupillary testing? Have you thought about that? And, you know, you know, there is a company that makes a, 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 an instrument that does advanced pupillary tests that's very sensitive, and I'm very intrigued with that test. I think I'm, I'm also intrigued. Um, I think the intrigue comes because it is something that is non-invasive. It, it's pretty quick to test patients with, and it gives us good data without being, uh, I don't want to say unpleasant because that makes my other tests sound unpleasant, but I know what my patients hate. <laughs> so, so I think idea of early screening, early intervention. I think that there's some interesting testing here in the same way that I think the genetic testing is interesting here. I'm cautious and watching. One of the other things that I want to make sure that we also do as we bring new equipment and new testing in there is that we do the our due diligence and make sure we correlate and know what we're doing. Um, I think it is a tricky spot to make sure that we make make sure we can integrate new testing well into flows without 
I can be trapped really quickly by buying every new device that comes out on the market because I love toys and I love the ability to to take better care of my patients. But I also want to make sure I'm mindful of the burden of the testing and of the cost of all the testing as well, because we have to acquire all these toys and use them. Um, I also think when it comes to future capabilities, you were talking about the pressures moving around. I think that's another place where more research is needed in a place where technology can can do some some future good, for lack of a better way to put it, and that we have contact lenses with a sensor chip in it that could measure what that pressure is doing for a day and report it back to the doctor. Currently, in order to do something like that, I mean, occasionally we'll have a, someone who's doing a 24-hour study on pressure, and we'll tell the students, it's like, okay, be careful before you volunteer for that one, because being woken up every hour around the clock for someone to check your pressure while you're staying in a hotel, that is a really hard way to earn a, a, a t-shirt from your uh, glaucoma professor. But that type testing, the ability to have a contact that could do that, I wonder how many of our normotensive patients are actually spiking overnight. You know, their their pressure in their sleep is going up or right when they first wake up is very high, but they can't get to me until the afternoon appointment after work. And I'm just missing the data point that would help me go, aha, I think that probably parses some of those patients there. I do think, I actually agree with you. I think some of those patients are actually a completely different disease process, but all that matters in them is that we protect them from vision loss. So it's it still fits in the bucket. Now, pupil testing, genetic testing, and I think that new technology is something we have to keep open minds to and eyes on. I just want to make sure that we correlate those tests and make sure that they're valuable because it is a place where in some cases we start stacking a bunch of tests into because the equipment's all here and the tests are all here. And let's do more things. And I don't want to get it where it's fuzzy. I want to make sure we understand what we're seeing. How's that? Right. And I want to move now to medical management and surgical management. Let's start with medical management. And we're going to run through the categories of different medications. So let's start with the prostaglandin analogs. Uh, they work by opening up the uveoscleral outflow. Uh, so talk about prostaglandins. You typically are first line, uh, a first line treatment. The prostaglandin analogs are PGAs is the the, the tech we'll throw around on it so we sound again we love a good abbreviation it makes us sound nice and smart but when we're talking about prostaglandins they are like you said uveoscleral outflow from so back to our sink analogy the way to think about it is that's not the main drain that's the overflow drain in the side of the sink right so it's it's a little bit different way of letting that fluid out of the eye now to open that pathway those prostaglandins create kind of they tickle the system and create a little inflammation a little irritation for lack of a better way to put it so most patients that are on a prostaglandin analog what they love about them is it's a one time a day drop so compared to when i was entering practice we only had a couple of different drops you know, one of them was four times a day one was two we had gel beta blocker we were so excited when we had one drop that they could use in the morning and one drop that they could use at night we thought those were the best days in glaucoma management imaginable it was so good so but pgas are nice because you just put a drop in before bed we get very long duration depending on which one we're using in some cases very long duration so then we're not obsessing with this patient about saying hey this is a three time a day medicine i need you to space it evenly you're not having to take it with you during the day um, likewise, if you took it at nine o'clock one night and 1130 the next night, uh, you know, Dr. Carey's not going to yell at you and say you're, you're letting your pressure jump up and down. From the downside of those, uh, patients will describe you know, redness initially. My joke about them is they're kind of like backwards visine. They put the red in, you know, the, so for the first week or two that you're using those medicines, the eyes look a little red. You can get a little pigmentary change underneath the eye where it gets a little darker, uh, now, what I don't get a lot of complaints about is they do make the eyelashes grow longer and darker. I've been rubbing the stuff on my head for years. It's done nothing. But my father-in-law. Helping me either. It didn't help you. So, but no, yeah, my. Speak, speaking about ball jokes, when I was young, I had wavy hair. It waved goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my joke was that, uh, you know, in, in time, everything moves, moves a little further back. And so in the same way that, you know your bedtime moves and the time when you want to get home moves and everything else. Well, so did my hairline. It moved back and back and back till it eventually got to my back. So there you go. I like it. But, but it is, uh, it, it was, it's kind of comical. My father-in-law, when he first started on prostaglandins, 
my mother-in-law was so jealous of him. She's like, look at his eyelashes. They're gorgeous. Because <laughs> he'd, he'd blink and he had these great eyelashes. And she's going, how do I get that? And it's like, well, that's not really the way we want to do that. Of course, ended up being something that I should have had the thought at that moment and be like, hey, I, I could have thought of Latisse years ahead of time. But it is... Uh, it, it, that that part, I don't get the side effect complaint so much on the eyelash growth, but prostaglandins are, are fantastic drugs are available in generic formulations as well as preservative-free formulations. I think uh, looking at implantable formulations of these medicines, these medicines, uh, they are very good. And I, I don't want to, as we're discussing advancing treatment, that doesn't mean we abandon our old ones. Just interrupt if you, you mentioned uh, the implantable anterior uh, mm -hmm. chamber implant, Darista which is basically Lumigan that's implanted as an Allegan uh, product. Did you, have you seen patients with that and how have they done? So uh, it is interesting. Darista, I think, uh, does a couple of things. Number one, completely different technology for some reason and putting a drop in the eye and putting the same medicine in the eye. I would have thought that we'd get the exact same response. And the fact that I don't tells me a couple of things. Number one, compliance, the ability to get that drop in every single night is harder than I make it out to be. And yes, I've threatened and fussed and yelled and all of my patients listen to me. Yours may not listen to you, but my patients love me and listen to me. So I thought that was perfect. But then we put this in and you'd get a better response than I would out of the eye drop. You're going, Why is this doing so much better? And some of it is because it's, we, we've put it right where we need it to be. And so it does, we get, get a little performance bump. But a big part of it is it's there. If you fall asleep early, if you were busy that day, if you were taking a trip, if you're on a cruise and left your medicine at home, all of the little things in life that cause non-compliance from our term, but that cause little fluctuations in pressure that over years become progression and worsening of disease, I think it addresses those issues beautifully. Duration of treatment seems to be a little bit variable. Uh, the good news is uh, we were hoping to get at least six months. And most of my patients have had it. We've gotten better more. Um, but I was hoping that maybe we'd get lucky and get a couple of years. And I'm not saying that either. Um, so for a lot of patients, if it's something we had to go put into the eye one time, I think it has a benefit. Once we start going, okay, well, we're going to have to do this again. Okay, maybe, but we're going to have to do this every year. And I think at that point, the its use is a little bit different. I think it has a great fit. But it is a place where uh, I think that future is is exciting on where we can be. I think then the same thing with uh, medications that could be liberated from from a punctal plug, where we can put it into the lower lid and have it release over the next while. So, of course, we have that now for steroids, but having that for these medicines, I think, is a good option as well. Honestly, for some patients that just physically have trouble, that rheumatoid arthritis patient or Parkinson's patient I had a neighbor that was a, a glaucoma patient of mine and he had Parkinson's and it just physically got impossible for him to use drops. So that's a great option for them that can provide months or longer without having to use drops as much. I think our medications are amazing. Using them in novel new ways is super exciting and gets us a lot of new options. Fundamentally, whatever we're coming up with, whether it's testing, whether it is treatment, whether it is is surgery or, or medications, if what we're doing means that one less person goes blind, it's 100% worth whatever it takes to develop those and use those. You know, it's interesting because it's a biodegradable implant. They put it into the anterior chamber. They put it on almost like this little tiny gun. You, they stick it yeah. in the eye and they, they, they press the button and it's released and it's really fast and it's pretty simple. I think some of the downsides is maybe insurance coverage. I think mm -hmm. it's only covered once. If I have that correct, things might have changed. And by time people are watching, it may be different, but it's definitely something that patients could ask their doctor about. Let me ask you about the new kid on the block, Visolta which adds uh, a nitric oxide uh, donator uh, that will relax the trabecular meshwork, which is the part of the eyewit, the drain of the eyewit, lets the fluid get out uh, a little bit better. Are you finding better results about the same? How, how do you feel about Visolta? So when it comes to Visolta uh, and a couple of other, uh, we have a whole other class there, are rho kinase inhibitors like uh, Roclitan and uh, Ropressa. So our ability to work in more than one place at a time inside the eye is really an exciting opportunity because to the patient, 
it's still just this one drop. And I think that's pretty impressive that we're able to do one thing and the other thing at the same time. Um, it does depend a little bit on your sink. Um, I've had great results with Visalta. Uh, I've had some patients that have been almost a miracle drug. Patients that had been on prostaglandins for years were drifting pressures up, just simply converting them to a different medication is able to get them back well below target pressures. That's great. Um, I have had some insurance fights with it as well, uh, which is true for any new medicine. Uh, but I think it depends on your sink. So if your side drain can be opened up and do well, you do well with a prostaglandin analog. So if your meshwork, uh, that trabecular meshwork, that spongy tissue that we're talking about can be relaxed, then that's another place where we can use that to drain your sink a little faster and lower your pressure a little lower. Uh, those rho kinase inhibitors are back working on getting restoring function within the normal system, right? So the that prostaglandin analog, it works by getting a, a shortcut another way out. The others work kind of like Drano getting one part of the drain to work better the way it's supposed to. And I think that that's restoring function, I think, is a better place to live it when we can. I think we get better results from that. And then, of course, our other medications, you're kind of like, like so I was talking about our old beta blockers and those. What about Timoptic, the old beta, yeah. beta blocker, uh, decreasing aqueous production? When do you use uh, the beta blocker and how effective is it? So betas I have a love-hate relationship with. So anything that decreases production is just turning the water down on the sink. Right. So then we're just decreasing flow in since we can't get flow out. Then. That does mean, though, that they pair well with certain other medicines. So depending on how a medicine works, if the two medicines work in the same way, well, that's like putting syrup on your sugar. We don't get quite the same effect. So if the patient's on a beta blocker, I also may not get quite as much effect if they're on a pill beta blocker to lower their blood pressure. But using a beta blocker is a spot where if I can decrease production of fluid and increase outflow, those that works very well to get those patients to lower pressures and protect that nerve. So I like that aspect of it. What I don't love about beta blockers is their side effect profiles. So in very rare occasions, we will get things like it can slow the heart rate a little bit. If the patient's already on one, I get less effect from it. Um, there's some sexual side effects in men. So having performance issues there is something that it's important to ask about and talk about. It's also important as a patient to talk to your doctor about, you know, it is, people think about it, this little eye drop can't be causing that. Well, it, it can be. And so if that's an issue you have, talk to your doctor about it so that we can help you. Because uh, ultimately, it, it, you want to live your full life in every way that you do it, right? So, but side effects also tell us where we can do better. There's other ways to decrease aqueous production. Um, or in other cases, it may be sometimes where it just doesn't work the way that we want it to work. The biggest issue, though, bar none of betas for me is a, what's called beta blocker drift, which is over periods of years of treatment, we start to see diminishing returns out of our beta blockers. And so I've moved them far down my list on where I use. Part of that's because my new drugs are so good, um, but also I want to, to keep that, that beta a little further down the line. But it is a very cost-effective and effective way to treat. How about asthma patients, breathing patients? Got to be careful with patients with COPD or breathing issues. So, and as an aside, one thing that's kind of off that I have had a little, little luck with is using beta blocker, topical beta blockers for headache. There's a couple of published reports there. And uh, I've, I've started using that on some patients uh, as an aside. Worked really, it's very, very interesting and something that deserves some more study as well. And how about alpha agonists, the alpha gen of the world? So yeah, bromonidine, uh, the active ingredient there. Uh, boy, we use it a lot. Now, one of the reasons is because it has moved generic. So alpha again, the name brand of it, then bromonidine, the active drug, comes in a handful of different formulations um, with widely variable clinical coverage on that. That's a place where you're talking about, well, insurance can be a funny thing. It is the strangest thing to have an insurance that will cover this percent, but not that percent plus that one. And then the next year, it's like, nope, now you got to swap to this one or that one. Alpha agonists work very well. Um, they're not as potent. So when we're adding them together, uh, it, we're back to my uh, food analogies. It's like the spices. So they're a little more delicate. Uh, so I don't get that huge reduction of pressure that I might get with that prostaglandin analog, which is why that prostaglandin is a first choice. But alpha agonists tend to be pretty good side effect profiles. There is some allergy out there to the medicine. So some patients just respond to the medication or it's preservative and can't have it. Um, 
but that's still not not a huge issue. In most cases, those medicines are supposed to be a three time a day drug, but most of us use it two, honestly, just because we've got some research that says that it does pretty well at two. And because when we ask a patient to start carrying a medication with them and use it in the middle of the day, the ability to use that medicine consistently just drops to the floor. So I do like alphas as a good uh, combination. I do like it also for some, some theoretical neuroprotective effect there. The ability to protect that nerve to actually increase the blood flow in the back of the eye. There may be some things there. There's some older studies that were on crush models, which means they, they were hurting a nerve and seeing like how long, if I treat it ahead of time, does it live longer? And it said, yes, it could. Those weren't on humans, so they're experimental only. But that is, I think, one of those things that will take every advantage we can get. And in some cases, I'll, I'll, as I'm mixing my recipe for this patient on how the best to intervene with them, I think an alpha fits nicely into there. So bromonidine can be a good drug. And it uh, increases drainage and decreased production is how it works. How about side effects? Side effect profile on bromonidine so is not terrible. Uh, like I said, now the, the allergy issues can be a factor there. Uh, there's just a, a little bit more sensitivity to that molecule just because that's how humans are made for some reason. So, but overall side effect, now there's a couple of other good things. Bromonidine in very low concentration is used to actually whiten the eye, Lumify, uh, which can be a safe way to whiten that eye, although it doesn't have really a pressure effect. Uh, it also does have a little bit of a pupil effect. You were alluding to that earlier as we're talking about it. Of course, bromonidine can constrict that pupil just a touch to increase the drainage. But for some patients, they actually say that it improves their night vision a touch. They like that. So, Again, I'll take every advantage I can get. And how about carbonic and hydrase inhibitors? Uh, how, how about those? Yeah, how about them? They are they are weird little me medicines. So CAIs, carbonic and hydrase inhibitors, are uh, kind of at the bottom of our list unfairly because on their own, they're not really that great. But they do pretty well when combined with other drugs. So then, for instance, a carbonic and hydrase inhibitor with the prostaglandins of pretty nice combination when it comes to pressure reduction. Uh, but they, they've kind of become where they're mixed in with a lot of other things. I, I think they're, they're sort of the uh, the forgotten seasoning when it comes to everything else. We forget just how potent they can be. Uh, they're available in pill form as well. Uh, but at that point, uh, we're getting a lot of systemic side effect and we're pulling fluid from a lot of different spots. So the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor just as a standalone drop, not a lot, but as an add-on or in combination with another in a, in a formulated combo, two medicines in one bottle, I think they can be pretty effective. And it's decreased production is how it works for the students that are watching watching us. Um, let's go to the, you mentioned before the rogue kinase inhibitors, which improve outflow of the trabecular meshwork. The, give me the, the good, bad, and the ugly of rogue kinase for someone who's used quite a bit. Uh, what's your opinion on it? And uh, I'll share mine as well. Well, yeah, the, so for my opinion, and it is one of those places where the old is new again, we're back to tr just trying to get the fluid out, restore function. So I like that. That's the good part. Mechanism of action here for me has been a little bit of a home run or a strikeout. And I think that probably has to do with the way that that mesh work works, the way that the sponge is certain people, maybe that tissue is tighter for them. And that we get just amazing effects. And then other times I'll use them in certain patients. I just don't get near the effect I was hoping for out of them. And again, it comes back to how their sink works, I guess. But that can get pretty frustrating. The, the biggest problem is actually more frustrating when I get this amazing outcome, but then I run into an insurance issue. Uh, because I do, I run against more insurance issues with those than, than with the others because they're newer and they're pricey. Uh, and in certain situations, though, it, if it comes down to, hey, I'm looking at either using this eye drop or doing a surgery, a few years ago, I used that as, again, like a weapon. It's like, hey, if you don't pay for this eye drop, I'm going to have to do, you know, send this patient for surgery. But in some cases now, the conversation's happening the other way. The patient's going, look, I'm in the donut hole. This thing costs a bunch more than I really planned for. I'm on a fixed income. Gas is expensive. Food's expensive. What do I do? And rather than having to switch back to an older drug that may not be as effective, in some cases, we're moving forward and moving in the other directions, the surgeries or lasers. So the, the, what do you think? The Ropressor and Roclitan. Roclitan is a combination which has, uh, uh, has uh, latanoprost in it. Uh, what I've found is that something you said was very interesting. When it works and then it doesn't get covered, 
what I find is what's even worse is when it works and the eye blows up and it gets all red and the eye, they get eye pain and their eyes irritated. And, you know, I have, I want to use it and they lower the pressure. Great. But the patient can't tolerate it. And yeah. Good and terrible. Yeah. It's, that is, that is the worst when yeah you're happy and the patient's miserable. You know, and Ropress is the name of the medicine standalone. Uh, Roclitan is one. It's a combination medication for those that are listening. Uh, so now let's talk about compliance of eye drops. So that's a big problem, compliance. You know, we think our patients are using their drops. They're coming in every three months, you know, on time. So you think they're using the drops, but are they really using their drops? What do the studies show? There, there are two kinds of patients, um, non-compliant patients and lying patients. So it is, <laughs> it is a little bit like teenagers right so there, there's your teenager that lies to you and then there's the stuff you don't know that your kid did but in this case though i think one huge thing that's kind of interesting a few weeks ago it's like a couple months ago my, my allergies just went haywire and so i had to go on a little steroid pulse dose and so i had to use drops four times a day then three then two then one i have told patients to do this literally thousands of times i was the most non-compliant patient imaginable Four times a day, I'd look up and it's like, wait, did I use it at lunch or not? How, how do I not remember when I've used my medicine? Am I this old now? I can't remember what I've done. So I think we use the, I mean, inherently the term non-compliance for like blaming the patient. It's your fault your pressure's up because I'm smart and it can't be my fault. No, we're a team. We got to work together to find the way to do this. But compliance is a huge factor. And I think some of it is the non-compliance aspect of that, right? I meant to use drops, but either I don't value it, I don't perceive that what's happening, I don't understand uh, what situation my eyes are in, or a little bit of it may be just the other factors that come into. I fell asleep. I forgot. We honestly have these medicines. We go, hey, use this every evening. Well, to a patient, that might be confusing. Memphis uh, is just north of my office. FedEx is headquartered out of there. We have a huge number of patients that work nights. Hey, doc, when's my night? Were we clear with them on when to use their drop? So then what if your shift goes back and forth? Uh, I had a uh, EMT the other day that worked a triple, 120 something hours continuously at the firehouse. So if he's on a run, he's not going to go stop and go, oh, good, it's it's nine. I better put my eye drop in so my eye doctor wanted. So they have to live life as well. But it some of it does come back to looking at the medicines themselves. So the prostaglandin analogs, one drop at night, that is a whole lot easier to comply with. Uh, when we're using an alpha agonist at bromonidine at three times a day, that's a little bit a little bit tougher. So if we're using a beta, that might be two times a day. That might be one time a day, depending on the formulation. But if we start stacking all of these medicines, the more we ask that patient to do, the lower their compliance is. And part of that. We blame, we already go, your patient compliance isn't good. The I think we need to change how we think of it a little bit. What we're asking that patient to do to manage their glaucoma is less possible than it needs to be. We need to find a way to help them the way that they need it to be, rather than just yelling at them and going, but I told you to use your medicine. But it is it, that is a place where having a, a, a team approach my job is to help you not go blind. Now, tell me about your life. Tell me about your insurance. Tell me about what you do. Let's figure out the way your drain works and how your sink is and get there. And I think that's important. But there are aspects of that of making sure that patients understand that because glaucoma doesn't hurt and those symptoms, unfortunately, follow far after the signs. In some cases, it does seem very strange. They go, I used this drop. It made my eyes red. And I couldn't see any better. So why did you make me use this? And that's a place where we have to teach better and do better. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicell, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicell technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses 
presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.